Good morning. Today, we are going to look at one of my favorite people in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament. It's a story of really a a spoiled son by a, a doting father. It's a story that reveals challenges of a broken and mixed family. It's a story of tragedy, a story of conviction. It's a story of arrogance and redemption and joy, and I find it absolutely fascinating. There are parts of the story that will remind us of Jesus, and there are parts of the story that I think many of us will be able to relate to. And there are also parts of the story that are absolutely heartbreaking. This particular person takes up the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis. And these 14 chapters cover over 90 years. And there's so much we do know about this person, but on the flip side, there are so many things that Scripture doesn't tell us, so many things that we simply do not know. Several years ago, I read a fictional book about this character, and it did a beautiful job, I thought, of getting you into the story, of helping you see the story through this person's eyes. Maybe what they might have felt, what they might have seen, what they even might have smelt or experienced. Again, it did a great job of putting you in their shoes. And this person we're going to look at this morning is just the beginning of the story. That's all we're going to be able to talk about. And if you've kept up with the reading plan so far this year, you've read much about this person, and you'll finish it later this week. But today, again, we're just going to get to the tip of the iceberg, and this person we're going to talk about this morning is Joseph. But before we get there, let's just invite God to meet us right where we are. Let's pray. God, thanks so much uh, for this morning. God, meet us right where we are and open up our minds and our eyes and our ears for what you have for us. Help us to leave change differently to be more like you. Help this Sunday impact our Monday. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Andy. If this is your first time joining us online or in person, thanks so much for joining here, uh, joining us this morning. Last week I said this. Uh, I still have a lingering cough, so if I cough, I apologize. I got through last week without coughing. I'm not sure it will happen this week. So I'll say if I cough, it's because I've strategically put cough in the script for dramatic effect. So if you could be praying for that, that would be great. Uh, Again, if this is your first time joining us, we're so glad you're here. We are headed to Genesis chapter 37. If you're following along in your Bibles, if you want a Bible, we have plenty of them in the back. They're absolutely free. Again, we're in our series of Fresh Start. And Fresh Starts are exciting. Uh, This starts a fresh start of a whole new football season right now in the playoffs. So who day, indeed. Uh, A fresh start provides us with hope. A fresh start can inspire us. Oftentimes, though, a fresh start means something happens that we didn't intend And now we need a new start, a fresh start. So if you haven't grabbed a journal, as Jana mentioned, again, I encourage you to do that. This was designed with you in mind. Not only does it have our reading plan for the year in here, it has a place that you can write notes from today's message. And of course, a place to journal as you continue your reading plan throughout the week. So I encourage you, if you haven't grabbed one, get up out of your seats, grab one so that you can take notes. Today's fresh start, we're going to talk about... uh, it isn't going to look like a good thing at all. At the beginning of this, his story, it doesn't seem great, the things that happens to Joseph. But before we get too far into Joseph, let's set the backdrop a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about Joseph's father, Jacob. Jacob is the father of Isaac. Jacob's father was Isaac, who was the son of Abraham in the story. Jacob was the younger brother of his twin brother, Esau, And during her pregnancy, their mother, Rebekah, was told by God that she would give birth to twins, 
Each of them would be a great nation, and Esau the elder would serve his younger brother, which would go against all cultural norms. Typically, the younger brother would serve the older one. But as it turned out, Jacob, by means of an elaborate double deception, managed to steal away his elder brother's birthright, and he did so from his father as well. Jacob then fled from his brother's wrath because he was threatened to kill him, and along the journey, Jacob receives a special revelation from God. God promises Jacob that he's going to have land and numerous offspring that would provide to be a blessing for the entire earth. Jacob named this place where he received this vision Bethel, which means the house of God. Arriving at his uncle Laban's house uh, in Haran, Jacob fell in love with one of his daughters, and her name was Rachel. He worked for her father for seven years so that he could have Rachel's hand in marriage. But in another lie and deception, what happened is Laban, uh, during the wedding ceremony, switched out the daughters, and he ended up marrying his older daughter first. Unintentionally now married to his older daughter Leah, Jacob was now compelled to work another seven years so that he could receive his beloved Rachel's hand in marriage. He works seven years. He gets to marry his beloved wife. He then continues to work for Laban for another six years where he um, gathers a large amount of livestock and then sets out with his family to return home. On the way, Jacob wrestles with this unknown figure, a mysterious stranger, a divine being who changed Jacob's name to Israel. Jacob then met and was reconciled with his brother Esau, and they settled in the land of Canaan. Jacob had 13 children, but he only had two of them by his favorite, most beloved wife, Rachel. And one of those two sons is Joseph. So with kind of all of that as our backdrop, let's jump into Genesis 37 and pick up the story. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, the father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So let's pause here. Here's what we know so far. Joseph is a 17-year-old man. He's a very young man. Let's talk about that for a minute. Maybe you're 17 now. You're around 17, so this would be really easy for you. But others of us, we may have to go way back in the memory pile to think about when we were 17. I graduated when I was 17, a skinny 135-pound redhead. I was not a very mature 17-year-old either. Heck, even now, 30 years later, if you put me in the right environment, I am that 17-year-old boy all over again. Actually, I truly believe this. I think all men are just seconds away, if you put them in the right environment, of being our 12-year-old self right? Yeah, all the women like absolutely agree, especially if you're married. But what about you today? (laughs) What about you? If you are 17, I mean, what do you like? How how mature would you say you are? If you've not been 17 in in a while, think back, like how mature, what kind of person were you? How did you perceive life? Joseph is a 17 year old Kid. So let's think about that as we continue the rest of the story. Because what did he say he did when he was that old? He said he was tending the flocks with his brothers, and he brought 
their father a bad report about them. We have no idea what this bad report is. It doesn't tell us. The only thing it says is it wasn't good. We do know that Joseph goes back and tells his dad. It doesn't seem like, according to the story that we have, that Joseph did anything to help solve whatever this bad report was or whatever the problem was. It could be that it's a sign of just immaturity. And he went back and told his dad, this is what you do at 17. It could mean this is really a sign of integrity. Joseph likely knew the story of his family history, that his dad was a deceiver, that his dad was also deceived. He may have known all that. Their family tree is actually littered with these kind of deceit and lies. Maybe his brothers were stealing from the family. Again, we don't know anything. Maybe telling dad came from this dysfunction of the family and working alongside his brothers. Now, I'm the youngest in my family, and I could certainly relate to that if this is what happened. As growing up as the youngest, I trade everything I could do to put all my attention on my older brothers and sisters. And if that meant tattletaling, that's what you did, because more attention on them is less attention on me. So I could get it if this was the reason. But perhaps Joseph was doing exactly what Dad asked. Go see what's going on, and whatever the report is, bring it back to me. Again, we don't really know why he came back or what this problem is. So let's go back to the story and see what happens next. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made him an ornate robe. Now remember, Israel's Jacob. He's just been renamed as Joseph's father. But how awkward would it be for your siblings to know that you're the favorite child? Joseph is the firstborn son from his favorite wife. That whole sentence sounds weird. Imagine, hey, this is my, my favorite wife, like introducing people. People are like, I want a biblical marriage. I don't think you really want a biblical marriage, an Old Testament marriage, but I get what you're saying. This is a dysfunctional family. He fell in love with this woman. He had to work extra for her. He had to wait even longer for her. And to show how much he loves his son, his favorite son, Jacob makes Joseph an ornate robe. We might know it as the colorful robe, right? It's important to know that all his kids would have had a coat. They would have already had a coat. Joseph would have had a coat. This is an additional coat, an extra coat. It's also important to note that the length of coats, the color of the coats and robes signified importance in their society. It came with like a rank to it. What many scholars believe is that Joseph's coat signified several things. One, it proved that he was the favorite, most loved son. He was the only one that received this type of colorful coat. Secondly, many theologians believe it communicated that he would be the heir, the one that would receive the double portion of inheritance, which normally is reserved for the firstborn male in the family, which I am sure did not help with the way his half-brothers felt or viewed him. The next verse actually tells us how they felt about all that's going on. It says, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. I think that's pretty clear. Not only did they hate him, they couldn't even say a single kind word to him. I mean, try it again. Insert ourselves into the story. How dysfunctional would dinners be, right? 
I can just picture their brothers kind of being passive aggressive or giving them that stare or that look when they're like, hey, pass the potatoes or whatever it is, right? Like the looks they gave their dad as, as he treated Joseph differently around them. I can't imagine that type of environment, not only for his half-brothers, but for Joseph to grow up in knowing full well that his siblings hated him. We also have to keep in mind, they didn't have two-story houses. There's nowhere for, for them to hide, right? They, they were in very close quarters. They didn't have their own rooms even. But even with all that's happening around him, Joseph doesn't help himself a whole lot either in this story. But we have to also pause here a moment and remember and think about how far this family has drifted and what, how they may have lost their way. I think it may help us. Abraham was promised that his family and his family tree would be a, made a great nation and be blessed by God. God would bless those that bless him, and God would curse those that curse him. His family seems to have lost their way. None of what we're reading right here seems to sound like they're striving, believing, or living as though any of that is true. They don't seem to be trying to be a blessing to anybody at all. Listen to what happens next. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were, we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheep rose and stood up while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? They hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. I would love to have asked Joseph a few questions about this. Like, hey, come here for a minute, Joseph. Why, why did you share this dream with your brothers who already hated you? I mean, what outcome did you really expect here? Did you really expect, like, I'm going to tell this dream that they're going to think they're going to bow down to me? And they go, that's awesome. We can't wait for that, right? Like, why were you sharing this? So sharing this dream where they would bow down I don't think helps close any relational gap that's going on in this family. Actually, because he, he shared the dream, it says they hated him all the more. Now, the good news is Joseph learned from this when he had other dreams. He, actually, that's not what happens at all. Listen to what happens next. He says, then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So he has this other dream, and since it went so well the first time with his brothers, he decides, you know what, I'll tell him my second dream. But of course, he doesn't stop there. He also tells his father as well. But his father didn't seem to really care for this dream either. But there are a few things to point out in this story that I think is sometimes overlooked. One is there's no reason to believe that Joseph had any idea what these dreams meant. It doesn't tell us now or in future readings that he knew exactly what these dreams meant or how the outcome was going to play out in his life. He also doesn't seem to be asking his brothers or his father what this dream meant. Perhaps this is way of Joseph's way of kind of bragging, I had this dream and you didn't. 
maybe in the excitement of the dream, he just couldn't help himself and he had to tell somebody and who else to tell but your family. But we also need to keep in mind that in biblical times and still in many Eastern cultures, culturally, the perception of dreams is that they have meaning. Not only that, they believed, again, still now in Eastern cultures, many of them, that dreams are influenced by God versus how we may typically think of dreams, right? Where we just write them off as random and unimportant. Whatever the reason that Joseph decided to tell his family his dreams, this is not going to help his short-term life at all. It only adds to the hatred and the dynamics of this dysfunction in this family with his brothers. Now he has his father frustrated as well, it said. But his father says something interesting. It said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? It's interesting that Jacob, or Israel, refers to Joseph's mother who passed when Joseph was a young boy. This likely indicates that his father sees this dream as Joseph claiming that he would have prominence in the entire ancestral line, superseding his parents in significance. But there's something I love about all of this, that one line that he says. His father's certainly taken aback by his dream, but he says something very interesting when he said, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. His brothers were jealous, but his father kept the matter in mind. We're going to see that kind of phrasing throughout the rest of Scripture in a lot of different places. Keeping the matter in mind. Keep or kept, as some translations say, means watch over or guard. His father would guard this in his heart. He would keep it in his mind. He just doesn't discount it as some silly dream by a young boy. This is a very important part of the story. You will read as you go on the story that there would be nothing easy or nothing fast about how this dream would come to pass or play out in his life. But where I want us to land this morning or spend the rest of the morning is his father's reaction to the dream that was shared. He kept the matter in mind. He was open to it. There was a possibility that this could be from God. This might actually happen. I'm going to keep it in mind. I'm going to guard it. He didn't close himself off to the possibility that it was from God. Listen to how one of the commentaries that I read captures this whole idea. It says, we make a mistake when we refuse to acknowledge as genuine and God-inspired any religious experience which we ourselves have not passed through. Isn't that true? If we haven't experienced it for ourselves, it seems, or if it seems too weird, like that's too weird for me, or it's too unexplainable, we can easily mark it up as that's not from God. The commentary goes on to say this, up to the measure of our own religious experience, we recognize as genuine and sympathize with the parallel experiences of others. But when they rise above us or get beyond us, we begin to speak of them as visionaries, enthusiasts, or dreamers. We content ourselves with pointing again and again to the blots in their manner, manner the people who are having these things happen, and refuse to read the future through the ideas they add to our own knowledge. 
In other words, we close ourselves off to them and God and the possibilities of what God could be doing or even what God might be wanting to do in us. And any time we close ourselves off to God, we are missing out. We're the ones that miss something. Listen to how the commentary continues to capture it. It says, But the future necessarily lies not in the definite and finished attainment, but in the indefinite and hazy and dreamlike germs, I love that phrasing, that have yet growth in them. The future is not with Jacob, the rebuker, but with the dreaming and possibly somewhat offensive Joseph. So what about us? Are we open to the experiences that we haven't had? Are we open to the idea that God may want to teach us something through somebody else's experience or that God can do those things in us or to us? Are we open to receiving things from people who might be uh, maybe even a bit immature, maybe in their life or even in their faith? Are we open to keeping in mind that God has yet to reveal everything to us? Maybe the things he has revealed to us that have yet to come to pass are still true. Will we allow the creator, the God of the universe, to open up windows in our faith we've yet to see out of? Or will we just close ourselves off to God and the possibilities of what he could do? Joseph's life will go on to model so many things about Jesus. Jesus will make lots and lots of people upset as well. That's what Joseph did. His brothers hated him. So many people will hate Jesus too. Joseph will later be sold as a slave. So too will Jesus. Joseph was left for dead. So too was Jesus in a tomb instead of a well. And in the end, Joseph's family does bow down. And in the end, every knee will bow that Jesus is Lord. I mean, maybe there's somebody listening this morning that hasn't opened up their lives to Jesus, that hasn't said yes to Jesus for the first time. Maybe there's, there's many of us that have closed off parts of our life to Jesus. Maybe it's because you don't believe that God can forgive the things that you've done. Like, God, you can, I can get, he can forgive you for those things, but I know me and I know my heart. I know what I've done. He can't forgive me for those. Maybe you're living that lie. Maybe you believe that he can't even use you, that he doesn't want to use you. Maybe you believe that God can't change you, that God can't love you. So the question is, will you open yourself up to the possibility that he does love you, that he can use you, that he wants to do something in you and through me, through you? Or are you going to continue to live life closed off? Let me ask this question. If you are closed off to, to God, or if you have parts of your life that you're trying to keep hidden, which he can see, like I'm going to keep these parts closed off to him, how's that working for you? Right? Like how's that going? So why not? open yourself up. What do you have to lose? See, we need to give God permission as followers of Jesus to move in us, to do things through us. Things that maybe we've never experienced, things that we might even think are a little too weird or a little too out there. We have to allow God to use others to reveal more of him to us.
We can't just continue to explain things away that have happened to us or to other people. We can't explain away the things that we feel like God has told us, promises that he's given us that maybe have yet to come to pass. We have to keep them in mind. We have to guard them against the enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy all things from God. We have to say no to those. We can't allow him to take those things away. So what if today we opened a window to God? What if today we believe God could do so much more than we could ever imagine or explain? What if today we trusted his word and we trusted his spirit? What if today we ask God to put into motion the dream he has for each and every one of us? To put into motion the dream of being used by God for God. To, to put into motion the trust that God wants to speak to us, that God wants to use us to be a blessing to others. That was the design for this family. That's why they've lost their way. They've forgotten the promises to be a blessing to those who bless them. We're called to, to love people, to go to the missing, to love the marginalized and live as God's kids. When Jesus is asked, which is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the other ones fall under those two things. That's what we're called to do. Love the Lord to God with all our heart, soul, and mind, everything that we have, and then go and reproduce that love in our lives to other people. See, the difference between this family, Joseph's family, and the family we're in is we're in God's family. We're one of God's kids. That's true for us today and tomorrow and every day when we say yes to Jesus. So will we let ourselves be open to that blessing? And will we allow God to do what only he can do? We have a part to play, certainly. The great theologian, I believe it was Augustine, says, work as though it depends on you, pray as though it depends on God. It's a both and. When God asks us to do something, we don't just then sit in a chair and hope we do it. We can actually go out and start to put into practice those things. Joshua 3, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. The priests are told, when you get to the Jordan River, they're carrying the ark, the flooding Jordan River. When you put your feet in, I will part the waters. It's a feet-first faith. Will we put our foot in? Will we believe God? Will we open up that window wide enough to look out and go, that's possible? Not just for them, but for me. Grab your Connect cards that you would have received in your program when you walked in or in the seat backs in front of you. If you've not filled this out, again, I can't encourage you enough to do the simple act of obedience of just simply writing your name or whatever else you're comfortable writing on here. Of course, if information's changed, we'd love to know that. But I truly believe that when you simply fill this out, you're saying, God, I believe you have a next step for me. I believe you want to speak to me. I believe you want to challenge me. And by simply filling that out, I think you're more likely to take a next step. We're always going to offer you some next steps. But during this message, during worship, you may have felt like God has prompted you to do something. God has spoken a truth to you or 
asking you to do something, I'd simply ask, write that down as your next step. Drop it in the offering when it goes by. I look at these, I pray over these, and if you want me to follow up, you can write that uh, down as well, and I'll make sure that I do that. But the first next step is this. Accept Christ for the first time. I've often gotten the question, Andy, why do you ask for people to accept Christ for the first time every week? My answer is simple. It would be extremely arrogant of me to assume everybody is a Christ follower. I want to give everybody an opportunity as often as we can to accept the love of Jesus. Those that haven't accepted simply don't know how much they're loved. When we say yes to Jesus, what we're saying is, God, I'm, I'm tired of living life on my own terms. I would love to have these windows into your world, into your heart. And so we're saying, God, I'm, I'm tired of doing it on my own. I'm sorry for all the things that I've done. And you turn to God. That's called repentance. And you say, God, come into my life and lead my life. And trust that he has good things. If you've made that decision, I just encourage you to check that box on your Connect card and drop it in the offering when it goes by. Be sure to grab a Bible, some resources back there. But you're not meant to now do this on your own. I say this a lot. The Bible is a we book. It is not a me book. It was written to a community of of people, not a single person. Can God use scripture for us individuals? Absolutely. God will change us. But it's meant to be read in a community of people. That's why small groups are so important. The second next step is this. Accept the fresh start of allowing God to move in us and through us to be a blessing. God doesn't want to bless us simply to bless us and us keep it all for ourselves. He wants to bless us so that we then go and bless others. What if today you open up your, your window into this new window into your faith and say, God, I believe you can speak to me through dreams. I'm going to have a dream and then I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to process it with people that I, I trust. What if you believe enough today that during prayer, worship, you ask God, give me some pictures, give me some words. How do you see me? How do you feel about me? God wants to speak to us always. Not just in these walls, but beyond. You can do this outside in your own quiet time, in your car, when you're driving, when you're listening to worship music, when you're taking walks. God wants to speak to us. We can receive to use us. And the third is receive. But in the offering, when it goes to ways, you can receive prayer here at this church. You can write it on your Connect card and drop it in the offering when it goes by. You can leverage the prayer wall in the back. We have tags. You write out your prayer request. We prayed for all of those this past staff meeting. You don't want anybody else to see it. Make sure the writing's pointed towards the wall. If you want the community of people, of believers, to pray for that as well, keep the writing outside. And then I encourage all of you to go back there and read those that are sticking out. Pray for them. You can email us at prayer at blueashcc.com. And of course, I think the most impactful, powerful way is to receive prayer in person. We have prayer teams in the back corner over here and to my right. Be honored to pray for anything that's going on in your life. It could be just, I would love to be blessed and they'll pray a blessing over you. It could be, I don't know why I'm here. And they'll ask God, God, do you have something for this person? 
and we'll see what God does. Maybe you have struggles that you're going through. Maybe you have an upcoming test or a big meeting, whatever it is. God cares. Receive prayer. Let the community of people rally around you to walk all these things with you. Don't feel like you have to go, go at it alone. And the last is our memory verse. You would receive these on your seats. I missed those last week. That's a my miss. But you have them now. Uh, and this is, this is our memory verse for the series. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. I, I love this. Like This should be our, our posture always. God, if you're not with me, I don't want to do it. Right? I think the enemy often works in our greatest strength. It's in our greatest strength that we often go, God, I got this one, but I do need you over here. And the enemy goes, that's right where I want you, anywhere you're separated from God. So even in our strengths, let's make this our prayer. God, if you're not with me, I don't want to go. And of course he's going to be with us. God will never leave us, never forsake us. He's always with us. We just don't realize it. We don't ask for his help. So write this on our hearts. This is why we say get into the Bible so the Bible gets into us. I'm going to go ahead and receive our offering. If you came this morning and you wanted to give, you weren't prepared, you can go to BACCgive.com. There's lots of ways to do that. Of course, there's an offering envelope in the seat backs, postage paid. Write the check, just drop it in the mail later. Spend just a minute or two talking about communion grab your communion elements. You want to grab those? If not, you can grab one uh, at the door when you walked in. We do this almost every week. And What gets lost oftentimes when we read the story of the Last Supper and Jesus offering communion to his disciples is what he was doing, the act of what he was doing was very familiar. This would happen in leadership and kings and you'd have a community of people and when you'd raise up this glass and everybody would drink from it, when you drank from it, you were essentially saying, I'm in, I'm all with, I'm with you. What was different with Jesus was when he said, the bread is my body and the, the wine is my blood. They're like, wait a minute, what do you mean? He's the bread of life. He's what sustains us. His blood is what covers our sins. So when we take communion and we metaphorically raise up our glass and we drink from it, what we're saying as Christ followers is, I'm all in. Whatever you say goes. I'm with you. And so I want to encourage you, like, just because we do it every week doesn't mean you do it every week. There could be weeks you're like, I'm just not there today. And that's okay. Then I would ask, instead of just going through the motions of communion, stop and pray. God, I'm not there, and I want to be. And just see what God starts to do and stir in you. Take it with you. Take the communion home. Maybe God will speak to you later, and you go, you know what, I am in. That's what we're saying when we take communion is, I'm with you. Let me pray. God, thanks for the story of Joseph, uh, just the hardships that he's going to endure as we continue on his story and the questions. And I have to imagine there's many of us who felt like in our lives or maybe even now, we've been in a well left for dead that nobody cares. Maybe we feel like we're in brand new communities. Maybe we've been falsely accused 
Maybe we've been in leadership positions and then been doubted. Maybe we find ourselves in community where there are, we have followers or people are listening to us. We have influence, which is all leadership is. And we could even go, yeah, but I want to be influential over in that community. And whatever's going on in us, God, would you just help us to meet you right where we are? Help us to see things as you see them. Give us that perspective that you have. Even in the midst of misunderstanding, of we don't understand where we are, but God, you know where we're going. So God, help us keep our eyes on you. Help us to remember that you created everything. And as a pastor once said, you got me in this mess, so you got to get me out. Help us to live with that kind of faith. Open up windows in our relationship with you that we believe that you can do anything you want whenever you want. Even in the midst of our doubt. But come, come by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do what only you can do this morning as we do what only we can do, which is open ourselves up more and more to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You're free to sit or stand and receive prayer.